This is week number 46 in our study of the book of the Gospel of John. And we're over in chapter 8, taking about 10 verses a week as we try and walk through uh, this long passage uh, that Christ is discussing with the Jewish leaders. And you remember that we looked at, probably starting in chapter 12 and continuing down to the end of the chapter, this appears to come on the heels of chapter 7 and be a, a continuous conversation that's going on. If that's true, then that day when Christ stood up in the temple, the last day of the feast, and he cried out that if any man is thirsty, um, let him come to me and drink, if, that that would have taken place out in the uh, courtyard of women. Because now we find Christ, we saw this, it's cutting in and out, right? Not just my ears? Okay. We'll try and go with this. Um, that he was in the courtyard of women, standing in front of the treasury. And the more I read this, the more I believe that this whole passage, all of chapter 8, takes place at the same time that chapter 7 did, and it's just one long, continuous conversation. And so if that's true, Jesus is referring back to several of the things that he said previously in this conversation. You remember that we saw two weeks ago that he says that he's the light of the world, that any man who comes to him would not be in darkness, but would have the light of light. And then he goes on from there, and last week we saw where he added to that, that not only is he the light of the world and the source of life, but he also then um, contrasted not only walking in darkness, but he contrasted that life with death in your sins. You remember he said directly to the, the Jewish leaders that if you do not believe in me, then you will die in your sins. And he said it twice, just so they would not miss what he was talking about. So he's contrasted darkness with light, and he's contrasted life with death in this passage that we've been looking at. And you remember last week he also contrasted himself with the Jewish leaders saying that you're from this world, but I'm not from this world. You are from below, I'm from above. You remember with the in Galilee when he said those things, that's when the people abandoned him. That's when they left him. They said, how could you be from above when we know your mother and your father? That's the same thing that's in the mind of these Jewish leaders. And I think they even intimate that, not in today's passage that we'll look at, but in next week's that they refer back to where Jesus came from and the situation surrounding his birth. And so Christ is having this conversation, given, trying to give clarity to these Jewish leaders. And I think he does exactly that. He accomplishes his task, and yet they, they keep speaking back to him. So today we'll go on in this conversation. We'll have to refer back to some of the things we've already seen and see how Christ relies on those for what he talks about this week. So we're going to pick up in verse 31 today and go down through verse 40. And this is, again, I believe, a continuation of what we've been talking about. So beginning in John chapter 8, verse 31, there the scripture reads, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have not and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Okay, so you see this, this back and forth between Jesus and these leaders. Now, There's a critical statement that we looked at last week in verse 30 where John says that as Jesus said these things, meaning as this conversation is going on in the temple on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, as Christ stood up and said, I am the light of the world, and then from there we go into this long conversation. As Jesus said those things, verse 30 that we read last week, he says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Okay, now, have we seen that somewhere else in the book of John so far? Where people, where John states that people believe in Jesus Christ? I mean, in my mind, that was clear. That we've seen this multiple times as we've gone through here. And yet, were all of those people true believers? Or were some of them false believers? Believed only in the miracles, maybe believed that Jesus was maybe a messenger of God, but not God himself. And so I went back and I looked, because I wanted to make sure I said this right. How many times has John said that there were many people who believed in Jesus Christ? And yet we know at this point that almost nobody believes in him. All the people in Galilee clearly don't believe in him. And most of the people listening to him here don't believe in him. But John still makes the statement that many believed in him. And so you have to make a decision here. Is he talking about true believers? Or people who um, believe maybe in the miracles or some of the things that Christ said but aren't true believers? And so the only way I know to do that is go back and look at all the other times he said that and see how this one relates to those. Okay, so... Uh, excluding the people, the places where John says that the disciples believed. Because if you remember, as the disciples were meeting him all the way back in chapter 2, that he said that each one of them individually believed in him. Now, <laughs> there are, so excluding those and excluding people like the nobleman who uh, came to Christ and said, please um, come heal my son, and Jesus just spoke a word and that 15, 20 miles away in Capernaum, this man's son was healed. And if you go through that, he says he went and asked his servants, when did my son begin to feel well? And it was at the exact time that Jesus spoke the words. So it says then he believed in all his household. And so we know that he believed in, in Christ Jesus truly. And so there are some individuals. But when you start talking about the crowd, there are three places 
that we've come across so far in John where he says that many people believe in Jesus Christ. So I want to look at those three places because I believe that in two of them you have true believers and in one of them you have false believers, people who didn't really believe in Jesus Christ. And I think the scripture is clear in that, but I want to use those to then look at what we're talking about here in, in chapter 8 and verse 30 where he says that many people believed in Jesus as he said these things. And what does he exactly mean? Okay, so the first one is found um, all the way back in um, chapter 2, verse 23. So John chapter 2, in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, this is the, the first time Christ shows up in Jerusalem at Passover <coughs> Uh, in his ministry. You know, he went there many times. Obviously, he went there when he was 12 with his parents. and probably went there every year after that. This is the point. This is the time when he goes in, he turns the tables over, and he runs the money changers out of the temple. And then down to verse 23, it says, it reads, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So why did the people believe in him? Because he was working miracles. You remember, this is the Passover week. Um, and this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for that whole week, he was working many miracles. And so a lot of people, the scripture says, believed in him. But then notice what John adds to that. He then writes, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What's John telling us? These are not true believers. These are people who flocked to Jesus simply because he could work miracles. They, they weren't listening to what he was saying and, and his teachings. They came to Jesus because they were attracted by the miracles. And you, you see that clearly as... Um, Christ leaves and then goes to Galilee. And these people don't go with him. They don't follow him. They stay in Jerusalem. Okay, so these, John, and, and I think that's why John adds this little statement that Jesus didn't entrust himself to these people because he knew what was really within them, and that was unbelief. And so Christ knows that, and so he just leaves these people, and he goes to Galilee to have his ministry there. So this is the first time we come, and yet he's, he writes it plainly. The words are exactly the same in the Greek that many believed in Jesus Christ. But this is not true belief. This is belief that he could work miracles, not that he was the Son of God. Okay? Then there's this, another time over in chapter um, 4, and this is after Christ. Um, after John the Baptist has been taken into custody and Christ is going back to Galilee and as he goes back to Galilee he goes through the land of Samaria and he meets the woman at Jacob's well the Samaritan woman and we know that story well well that woman goes out she, she becomes a, a true believer Christ leads her step by step by step to understand that he is the Messiah and so she believes and she goes and tells everybody and as a result of her going and telling everybody we have John chapter 4, verse 39. 
from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because we, of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves and know that this one indeed is the Savior of the world. Now that's a different statement than they came to him because he was working miracles. He didn't do any miracles here. These people believed because they heard Jesus himself teach them that he was the Savior of the world, that he was the Messiah. And they had true belief. And this is a whole city of, this is the city of Sychar in Samaria, outside near the Jacob's well. And the whole city, basically, believes in Jesus Christ. Remember, this is the place where as they come out to him um, to come to the well, and they're walking through the fields, and he says, Behold, the fields are ripe for harvest. Meaning these people are coming to true faith. And so this is a situation where he says many people believe and they're true believers. So now you've got contrast. Many people believing because he worked miracles. Many people believing because they listened to the teachings of Christ that he was the Savior of the world. Those are two totally different things. Okay. Then the third place is not too far in front of where we're at now. It's over in chapter 7. Well, let me show you something in chapter 6 first. Remember, chapter 6, the first part of the passage is uh, the chapter is where he uh, feeds the 5,000. And after feeding the 5,000, you come to chapter 6 and verse 14. And here's the testimony of the people when they saw this fantastic miracle. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. These people truly believe or not? John say they believe? No. No, what do they recognize and believe? That he might be the prophet. That he could be the prophet. This guy can work great miracles. As a matter of fact, we're going to make him our king so he'll continue to work the miracle of providing food for us. That's what they say the next day, right? Back in Capernaum. Give us this bread. Meaning, we're ready to be fed again. It's been, you know, 24 hours or since you fed us before. We want to be fed again. That's what's going on with these people in Galilee. And then ultimately, what do these people do? At the end of this chapter, where are they? They all leave, right? Every single one of them, except for the disciples, by what John is writing, leave him. And these are people that less than a day before wanted to make him their king. On the evening before they wanted to make him their king. And now it's midday the next day and they all leave him and say he's a crazy man. And the things that he's speaking, we can't, try, we, we, we can't understand these things. And we don't agree with them. And, and they push against him and leave him. So clearly those were not true believers. All right? Then you come to chapter 7. In verse 31, and you remember this is at the uh, this is after Christ has stood up on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and said um, that if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his inner being will flow rivers of living water. Okay, and then after that, 
we come we came down to this um, verse 31 of chapter 7 where it said but many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying when the Christ comes he will not perform more signs than those which than this man has will he meaning that <coughs> The Christ would not do anything greater than what Christ was, than what Jesus was doing in front of them, basically equating him with the Christ, saying that the Christ wouldn't do anything greater than this, so this man must be the Christ. But then you remember that we went through the end of this passage, and there were five different groups of people that had different um, perspectives on who Jesus was, and that only one of those groups were true believers. Because you come down to um, verse 40 and you see this is with the first two groups of people some of the people therefore when they heard these words this is his teaching on that last day heard these words were saying this certainly is the prophet now is that the same thing as Christ being the anointed one being the messiah being Christos is that the same thing as being the prophet no no those are two different things. This is like people who today stand up and say, Jesus was a good man and had good teachings. That's true. Okay? But that's not the whole story, right? And you can say all day long that Christ was a good man and had good teachings and not believe that he was the Son of God, that he was God incarnate, and die in your sins. Okay? Because that doesn't get you there. But the next verse that we look at here... In verse 41, here are true believers. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Those are people who believe that this is God incarnate. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Christos. He's the anointed one. Okay? So these are the true believers in the group. And you remember now, when we come to chapter 8, I believe this is all one long conversation. And if, as we went through that last passage of chapter 7, remember we had to point out this is not necessarily sequential. All these things were going on simultaneously on that last day of the feast. And so you had soldiers coming to arrest him. You had Pharisees sending the soldiers. You had people discussing who Christ was. All of this is going on at the same time. And then you come to chapter 7... <coughs> or come to chapter 8, and it's just a continuation of that same situation. Okay, so I think when you get down, and I could be wrong, but I think when you get down to chapter 8 and verse 30, when John writes, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Those are the same people that we just saw back in chapter 7. Because we're still in the same situation. The scene has not changed. Christ stands up in the court of women on the last day of the feast and says, I'm the light of the world. Or says that, uh, first he says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. If any man believes in me, he will not walk in darkness, right? But he will have the light of light. So this is all going on at one time. So what we see here in chapter 8 and verse 30 are the same people who believe that Jesus is the Christ back in chapter 7. The scene has not changed. We're still talking about the same thing. All these things going on at the same time. And so these two people come together. Now, I ask you a question. Are these people true believers or false believers? 
when we come to chapter 8 and verse 30. True believers or false believers? It's crucial what your thought is here because in the next few verses, Christ speaks directly to these people and only to these people. If he's referring back to the ones spoken of in 741, then yes, they are. Then they would be true believers because they believe that Jesus was, was, the was the Messiah. Right. They believe the words that he said. Now, Christ is going to push on that a little bit here in, in chapter 8, but the, that would be true believers. Right? Now, which of the people were the true believers? Because you remember, we've been going through this all along, right? And whenever John writes the Jews, who's he talking about? The leaders only, right? When he talks about all the Jews that came to Jerusalem for the feast, what does he call them? The masses, the crowd. The masses, the crowd. However, you know, some, some generic term to describe a lot of people. But when he says the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish leaders. Okay? Now, in this what's been going on in chapter 7 and now into chapter 8, who is Christ talking with? Who's he, is he just out in the um, court of women in front of the treasury? Behind him, you remember, are the 13 uh, chests that look like trumpets because they're wide at the top and they go down narrow and open into the chest. He's standing in front of that and he's teaching all the people. Who is he conversing with? This course is really yeah, it clearly is. And let me show you that. That he's talking to the leaders. Now, in, in verse 3 of chapter 8, it's the first time when it says the Jews, right? But I'm not going to use verse 3. Why not? Why wouldn't I use the first verse 3 of chapter 8? It's in that questionable... It's that questionable passage, right? It's in the brackets, right? All the way from the last verse of chapter 7... Verse 53, I think it is. Go through verse 11 or so of chapter 12, of chapter 8. You have brackets, right? So we're not going to use that to prove the point. Okay, because that's questionable. It is found in various places and various manuscripts, not necessarily where it is in your scripture today. And so we're not going to use that. So we drop down below that and we'll come down to. Um, verse 13. And you'll see this goes back and forth. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So Christ stands up and he says, I'm the light of the world. If any man follows after me, he will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. And they say, whoa, 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 you can't say that because no one's cooperating your statement. And it's the Jewish leaders who question him. It says it here clearly, right? The, scribe, the Pharisees are the ones who stood up and said to him. All right, then drop, just follow this conversation as we go. Drop down to verse 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. This is, they were saying to him. Who's the, the, pers- uh, the pronoun referred to? Who were saying to him? The leaders. The same guys, right, that spoke to him before in verse 13. The Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews. And just follow this conversation because it goes back and forth. In verse 21, then he, meaning Jesus, said again to them, I go away and you will seek me. So Christ is talking not just to the whole crowd, right, 
He's speaking back to those who are speaking to him. So this is a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Drop on down to verse 22. So the Jews were saying, the Jews, meaning the leaders of the Jews, speaking back to Jesus. And so it goes back and forth. Verse 23, and he was saying to them, saying again, this is the Pharisees speaking to Christ, Christ speaking back to the Pharisees. I have a reason for doing this. Okay. Verse 25, so they were saying to him, who are you? So this is, a, this is the Jew, Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and Christ having this conversation. But there are hordes of people there. This is the last day of the feast. There are people who, who have come from Galilee and all the surrounding areas to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. You remember a time of great joy and for thanksgiving for the provision of God, mainly while they were in the desert. All the water symbols that we talked about and all the things that are going on here. And so this is Christ in the court of women speaking back and forth with the Pharisees and all these people can hear them. But they're having this conversation going back and forth. Now, when you get down to our passage for today, when he, he first says in verse 30, and as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. you got an ESV, what does it say? That Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him. Right now, if it has meant the leaders everywhere else, what does it mean here? Who are these people who are believing in Jesus Christ? Some of the leaders. Now, we kind of reject that, right? Why would you reject that some of the Pharisees, because we just said that these aren't false believers, these are true believers, Right? But now we're talking about Pharisees. So, okay, why would you push against that? What, go ahead. Well, are we sure that these are true believers? Because when, when he says in verse 31, he gives them, he tells them some truth, but they're answering back to him the negative, like, you know, no, we have problems with what you're saying. I mean, he's saying, if you... I mean, and I don't want to get ahead of where you're going, but sure. he says, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. And they right. say, we've never been slave to anybody. Right. And then he says, we've slaved to sin, and they're like, no, we're not. I mean, they, they're arguing with him. Who's that speaking back to him? It's the leaders. The, the leaders. leaders. The, the, the leaders as a whole, right? It's not, it says the Jews didn't believe that. Right. It's almost like that. He's the first part is he's speaking to the Jews, the leaders that believe in him, but the ones who are responding back are the ones who don't. Right. I think that's what's going on here. He's, I mean... The, the ones who are beginning to believe, who are believing, aren't the ones who are speaking back to him. Okay? Now, why would you push against that some of the Jewish Pharisees became true believers at this point in Christ's ministry? What would your evidence be? Because as a group, they're the ones that... Well, as a group. Yeah, no, no doubt. Right now, you think about that. As a group, they're the ones who instigated and propagated and uh, drove him to the cross, right? Because the crowd followed them. They were the first ones to stand up and say something. Alright? Alright? Why would that cause you to believe that some of them weren't true believers? Just think about the events that preceded the crucifixion. 
There's not a whole lot of them that step forward yeah. in defense. Were there any that stepped yeah. forward in his defense? At the trial, is there anybody who steps forth to defend Christ? No. Not a single person. Nothing. Nobody steps forth at the trial on the, on the night he was betrayed to defend him. Nobody. And he doesn't even defend himself. Now, could there have been true believers in that group who would have been sitting in the Sanhedrin, who were the ones who were trying him, that were true believers that did not say anything? Yes. Yes. Well, you know at least Nicodemus believed, right? Why would I say such a thing? He's the one that gets him off the cross, right? He and Joseph of Arimathea. And that was just a few hours after the fall of the trial. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, it's the same day. You have the trial early in the morning. You have the crucifixion. And then before sundown, they're taking Christ off the cross and putting him in the tomb. And Nicodemus is the one who does that. Nicodemus, one of the leading Pharisees. But a true believer at that point. Go ahead. And in their defense... It's not like the disciples stuck around by Jesus' side. Well, that, that's the point, right? If they were true believers, they would have stood up at the trial, right? Oh, really? How about Peter sitting out in the courtyard when a little girl walks up to him and he says, I have no idea who this guy is. I don't know the man. Peter a true believer at that point? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yet he defected. So... Why couldn't there be some Pharisees who believed and didn't say anything? Could have been, right? Could have been. Oh yeah, fear of man is extremely powerful, right? We all know that, right? We've all experienced that, right? Yeah, they don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right. And that's always crucial to remember. Even in the words that Christ gets ready to speak in this passage, it's crucial to remember that the Spirit does not indwell these people, even though they believe He is the Christ. Now, believing that He's the Christ, the Spirit will indwell them in about eight months from this point, right? Fifty days after He's crucified. They will will be indwelled by the Spirit, but at this point they're not. So now you've got Old Testament believers. That's who these people are, really. Christ is an Old Testament prophet. But he speaks of the New Covenant. Right? John the Baptist, an Old Testament prophet, although he's in the New Testament, because it was before the crucifixion of Christ. You know, all these guys, this is all Old Testament. Go ahead. But later on in the same passage, because he's saying he's speaking to the Jews who believed in him, Right. down in verse 45, he's saying, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe in me. Right. So, I mean... I don't and, think and there's that many in the crowd that really have saving faith at this point. I totally agree. There aren't many because, I mean, you, you get to the end of the, of the whole thing and in chapter 1 of Acts, how many people you got? 120. So there aren't hordes of people who believe in Jesus Christ, right? Because on the, on the day of Pentecost, you only have 120. That's all that are in the upper room. So even though John here clearly says that many believed in him, not all did, and it's not the majority of the people, but there are some true believers here. And I'll show you why I believe that as we finally get to the passage, right? But you have to think about all these things to know 
when in verse 31, when John writes, notice this is very specific. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. He's not talking to the crowd, although the crowd can hear him. He's not talking to the Pharisees who don't believe in him when he says these things. He's talking to those who do believe in him. And he doesn't say a lot to them, but he does say some very specific things. So as Christ stands and says these things, he's talking to Old Testament believers who are true believers, who believe he's the Messiah, that he's the anointed one of God, that he's the Son of God, that he takes away the sins of the world, he's the Savior of the world. So the people in 31 that Jesus is addressing are a different group of people than in 33. Everybody can hear it. Different people respond in different ways. Okay, so let's walk through it and see who says what when. Right? Now you see why I went where I went, right? This is a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, most of them not believing. But in this passage, for a couple of verses, he speaks directly to those who do believe in him. Because this goes over the heads of those who don't believe in him. They don't get it. But the people who do believe in him get it. And so he says something to them very specific. He says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now this is speaking to people who, what's their condition? They have at least taken, let's say it this way, the first step of belief, right? They believe this guy speaking to them is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one of God. So Jesus looks back at them and he says, not so much so other people, and this is what this is for us, not so much so other people will know you're a true believer, but so that you will know you're a true believer. He says, if you continue in my words, then you are truly disciples of mine. What's he saying? What, what does that mean? Oh, you think you believe in me? If you continue in my words, then you are truly my disciple. What's he saying? Pretty much what Joel was saying in the sermon this morning. It's the long obedience. If you stick there with him, you thick and thin with your pain, with your knees buckling, your hands drooping, until you reach the finish line. Right, it's not just a momentary thing. Okay, now these people may not be there yet, right? True believers today may not be there yet in what Christ is talking about. If you follow my words, if you continue in my words, then you are truly my disciples. Now, what words? What words is he talking about? If you continue in my words, then you are truly my disciples. Well, what words, Jesus? What words? What's that? All the things that he said from John up to this point, right? If you're going to continue in Jesus' words, what does that mean? It means that you're going to believe that the things that he's been teaching are true. When he says, I am the light of the world, or I am the bread of life, I am the living water. I mean, when he says those things, and salvation is found only in him, and that you have to obey his, you know, obey his teaching. That's what he's saying. You, it, you know, in, in this passage, 
If you, know, you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, is what he said to the Pharisees. Right? Verse 24. <coughs> if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's, what, that's part of what you have to believe. You also have to believe when he said, uh, I'm not from below like you are. I'm from above. That I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. That he's not from this world, even though you know his mother and his father, and that he came out of Nazareth. That he's clearly not from here, that he's from God. And that when he stood up in the temple, in their temple, and gave them five proofs that he himself is equal to God in five different ways, that he truly is God incarnate. These are the things you have to believe. If you continue in my words, that would be, you, you couldn't go in and say, well, I believe that, and I believe that, but that I just can't believe. That's what the people who said he was a prophet did, right? They picked and choose what they wanted to believe. That's, you can't do that. Go ahead. Just, just thinking about I'll let y'all fight over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, at the end of the gospel, he makes a comment about all the things that Jesus said that aren't couldn't be written in all the words, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, he just indicates there's a vast amount of information that he gave out that he didn't record here in the gospel. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot more than what we have in this story. There's no doubt about that. Go ahead. One of the key things that he said, though, from John three, was that if you don't have the son, you're condemned already. Yeah. Right, you tell these these people that they're slaves to sin. Right. So that's an, another thing that you have to believe. But I think it's important to make distinction here that there's no causality to their persevering. In other words, their perseverance doesn't make them sons. Right. They're being sons causes them to persevere. Or is a result of them being sons. Would be another way to say that, right? But always a result. But notice this. Because this is the other side of that coin. Christ does look them in the eye and say, if you abide in my words, then you are truly my disciples. Right? So there is this part of salvation. There is this action of salvation on the part of men that you don't just passively sit there and do nothing. I mean, you can go to Second um, Peter chapter 1. He says the same thing, right? To add all these things to your faith. Those are, that takes effort. As a matter of fact, he even speaks about the strenuous effort there. Go ahead. It's almost like saying that, I mean, we know from Scripture that your works do not cause you to be saved, right. but you know James clearly teaches that if you don't have the works, though, you, you, you can't prove that somebody's saved because they do good works, right. but you can really give evidence that they're not saved if they're not doing the good works. That's right. That's right. And that's what, I mean, there is, this is the tension in Scripture, right? And I don't want to always be saying that salvation is a work of God, because it, it is. You know I believe that, right? I mean, we talked chapter 6, and we walk through that, and you know what I believe, But, coupled with that, is this fact of what Christ is saying here, that how do you know you're a true believer? How do you, what what do you hang on to? Is that you're committed 
to following the words of Christ. That you continue in His words. That's evidence, not so much to the other people, but to you, if you're going to be a true disciple of Christ, then you've got to continue in His words. You've got people who are beginning to believe, who are, this is the Christ. And He says, if, that, if you agree with that, and you trust that, and you believe that, then there's this commitment level to everything that I've been teaching that comes with that. Otherwise, you're not truly a disciple of mine. You don't really believe. That's what he's saying to them. And he, remember, he's not talking to everybody here, right? This is a verse in which he's talking to those who believed in him. Not to everybody. They can all hear him. I agree with that. That's not who he's talking to. That's not who he says this to. He says this to the people who are true believers. So if you're a true believer, then you've got to continue in my words. You've got to continue in everything that I've been teaching, not just part of it. Are you okay with that? So you got someone who stands, I'm a Christian, but that passage, in it, I just don't go with that. Oh, really? Well, for us today, you don't hear the literal words of Christ, right? At least, I don't. <laughs> so for us today, continuing the words is what? Following the scriptures. Following the scriptures. And pick and choose? No. No. Because what are you picking and choosing? How do you know which is right and which is wrong? No, no. You have to take it all and believe it all and not reject any of it. And so, see, that's the, that's the problem with a lot of people today, right? Is there are certain passages that they just reject. That that contradicts what I believe. Well, then change your belief. That's what Christ is saying. You have to continue in my words. You can't push against what I teach. You can't agree with part of it and disagree with any of it. Go ahead. It also, they don't just cherry pick, but they also will just explain things away. Sure. You know, oh, when, when Paul says this over in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't really mean this. He really means that. If you take a look at the culture and blah, blah, you know what I mean? And explain things the way that are clearly elsewhere in Scripture that it also says, you know, don't do this or do do that. Right. Even though Paul said, <coughs> I count all things, everything that I had is rubbish, right? That I might gain Christ. And that I might preach the gospel. That's my intention in life, is to preach the gospel. Yet, we in the 21st century say, well, we didn't quite understand what Paul, he was really just trying to bring the Jews and the Gentiles together and do social reform. Well, I don't think that's what he said. But that's the, that's the new perspective on Paul, right? That he, he's just trying to reconcile these differing social groups and do social reform. That's not what he said. That's, that's not at all what he said. Just take his own words. Why was he doing what he did? Because God called him to preach the word to the Gentiles. It's what his whole life was. But that's not what we believe today. Right? Yeah, their whole concept was they were working their way to heaven. Sure. And we're in, in our concept, we are pleasing to our Lord, and the works come through him and only by abiding in him. And so it's, it's a whole reverse. You know, there will be works, but it's because of our love for Christ, and it's not... That, it's, that we're working our way to heaven, where their whole thing was the other way. You are achieving, you have to achieve your way. 
And that's what Christ says right here, right? That you abide in my words. You, you hold to what I've been teaching. That will result in certain things in your life. By necessity. Go ahead, Jerry. Well, two passages from Isaiah just keep ringing in my mind. The 55th chapter, the 8th verse, many of us know. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Right. And your ways are not my ways. That's absolute. And then in the last chapter, in the second verse, he says he seeks after those who tremble at his word. And I often ask myself today, today, you know, am I trembling under the authority and the wonder of God's word? Right. And how often do we do that? Is that a daily practice in our lives of embracing the authority of his word? And that's what Christ is telling me. There is no other way. That's what he says. And this is why he says what he says here. Because there are a lot of people in this group who thought he was a good man, who thought he was from God, who thought he was um, the prophet. You know, they, they had all these perspectives of who he was. But he said, if you truly believe, then you'll follow my words. You'll do what I've been, You'll believe everything I've been saying about myself. Those are the true believers. That's why people in this crowd could love his miracles, could believe he was the prophet, and yet still remain in their sins. Same thing is true today. People can have all kinds of perspectives about Christ, but unless you believe what he said about himself, not a true believer. And not only did you believe it, but you continue to believe it. That you persevere. Go ahead. Well, he flips that over on its head on verse 32. Sure. Because, so let's go there. Because he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So he's saying, if you continue in my word, it's it's our, it's in our action, like what we do. But then he says, you will know the truth. And that can only happen by God's power and God's opening up our eyes to believe. And then by him opening up our eyes to believe, we then know the truth, and that truth frees us from... So that I can know that because I know the scripture says this, then I need to obey that. And he gives me the power to do that. Versus if, if I'm a non-believer, I can know that the scripture says this, but I think that's a bunch of hooey and I don't want to do it. Okay, when Christ says that if you believe in him, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Sets you free from what? How do you know without any doubt that he's talking about freedom from sin and not some other kind of freedom. Because of verse 34. Because of the example that he gives that follows, right? Right? Right. I mean, because they respond back to him. What do you mean set us free? We have never yet been enslaved. Now, what do you know about the Jewish people? <laughs> They're the slaves of everybody, right? I mean, everybody. Old Testament. Why does Moses have to bring them out of Egypt? Because they've been in slavery for 400 years. All the way since Joseph, right? And then comes Moses in that whole span of time, 400 years, 420 years. They're in slavery in Egypt. Okay? Then they get out of Egypt, and you go through the Old Testament, and what happens to the kingdoms? I mean, the northern kingdom, 
get some fish hooks in their lips and are led off by the Assyrians into captivity, right? To be slaves of the Assyrians, never coming back. And then Judah, the southern kingdom, gets taken off by the Babylonians for 70 years of slavery, right? That's the prophecy given in the Old Testament that Daniel's reading when he goes, oh, it's been about 70 years, and God gives them visions of what's going to come. And so they're in Babylon for 70 years of slavery. And if you go on through their history, they're overtaken by the Syrians, and then um, ultimately in their current condition, they're enslaved to who? Romans. It's not uh, do work for us kind of slavery. Well, it is. Because what are the Roman? How would you? Why would you say they're enslaved to the Romans at this time in history? Because of taxes. You work and you work and you work, and all you get to do is pay more taxes. They were taking all their money, so they're in slavery. Although it's not chains and all of that. Although there's some of those, and if you go to Rome, but it's not quite that way. But it's still slavery. All right, so. Why do the Jewish leaders say, we have never yet been enslaved to anyone? Do they not know history? No, clearly these guys would have known history, right? They would have known the only time since the Assyrians invaded that they've had any freedom was in the Hasmonean dynasty about 100 years before Christ. That's the only time they had any freedom when they got to rule themselves until the Romans came in and smacked them and then they're back in slavery. So why would they make this statement? Because sitting here, it's an absurd statement. So they can't be talking about being captive to people. So what are they talking about? Why do the Jewish leaders stand up and say, we've never been enslaved to anybody? Why would they say that? Are they talking about themselves personally and not their people? They live in, in, under Roman rule. Yeah, but I, I still think that maybe they think that I'm personally not a slave to Rome. I mean, even though they are under Roman rule, I wouldn't necessarily think that, I wouldn't think that they would think of themselves as slaves to Rome. Maybe being oppressed by Rome, yeah, but not like because in that in that day and time, slavery had a definite connotation, it was a status that you were a doulos, you know, you were a bondservant or whatever and that was a status that you had, and maybe that's what they're thinking of here. So they're talking about themselves and not necessarily their ancestry. Yeah. Because in, in Egypt all of them were slaves. Right. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was thinking it was probably because even in captivity they kept their God. Yeah. They believed yeah. in Yahweh throughout and they it's had their... For you, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all those guys who came out of Egypt you know, there are three or four true believers out of millions, right? Because all the others died in the desert didn't get to enter the promised land. Unbelievers. So you're right. They, they, you know, some of them kept their God. There's always been a remnant of Israel that truly believed and, and held the true beliefs, always, <coughs> through all of history. So maybe that's what they're talking about. Go ahead. Father's note there mentioned something about perhaps their inward sense of freedom. Right. I don't know. Maybe is there? I wonder if there's any inclination there. Maybe they're talking more about eliteness. I mean, if that's on their mind, that they're that they're above that. Yeah, above it. Could that. be. Yeah, so this, kind of consistent with the way they see themselves. 
Very well. And, and the, you know, these are the leaders talking. This isn't all the people talking. This is the leaders. Go ahead. Righteousness that they think is theirs, that they are entitled to because they are the sons of Abraham, yeah. because they have the old covenant, and that has some that something that they know is their can't take away from them. Right, because they're the chosen. Right. Yeah, I think there's a sense of all of that in here. They're not talking about we've never been physical slaves. Go ahead. And I would tend to agree with that, and with the fact that you know they feel that their ritual keeping of the sacrifices and, you know, the Day of Atonement is freeing them from sin. Right. And you have to realize at this time, you know, the sacrifices were ongoing. Um, you know, the temple worship is all in place and it stays that way until 70 A.D. So all through preceding this time, after uh, the temple was overrun and desecrated up until 70 A.D., so you've got about 150 years there, maybe a little longer, of where the sacrifices and all of that is totally in place and not broken. Go ahead. And, and also that most of the time they've been known to be arrogant and stiff-necked. And oh, sure not. always did their own thing, even when it got them into trouble. So they're still thinking that we still made our own decisions, so they still felt that we were free to do what we wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. So they're not talking about physical slavery here, but they play into Christ's hands. Because he's not talking about physical slavery either, right? So then he explains what he is talking about. And now we're not talking directly to those who believe in him. What he says to those who believe in him is that to be true disciples of mine, to be true believers, you've got to abide, continue, whatever your scripture says there, in my teachings. You've got to hold to the doctrines I've been playing out, that I've been speaking that's what he says. So, you think you're a true believer? Then you've got to take the next step and be committed to everything I've said. You believe I'm the Christ? That's good. But in that belief, have the commitment that you hold to my doctrines. That you hold to everything that I've been teaching. That's what he says to the true believers. That's how you can know. Are you a true believer or not? Do you hold to the doctrines of the scriptures? The best you understand, though, do you embrace them and don't reject any of them? And that's what he's saying to these people. You say you believe in me. Be committed to what I teach. Okay, now let's go on. We won't go far. But we'll go a little ways. Jesus, in verse 34, he says you will become free indeed. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. All right, this is just a principle, right? This is not... Um, this, people who are unbelievers do not believe this today. A lot of people who are believers, I don't think, understand this today. Okay? He says that if you commit sin, then you are the slave of sin. Meaning what? If you're a slave, what's true about you? You obey. You, you obey. obey. It's your master. And you can't? Control. You can't do anything else. You can't get free. Right? That's what slaves are. So if you sin, then you're a slave of sin, and you can't get free. Now, 
that causes some consternation, right? Because what's true about true believers? They're not slaves of sin, but they still sin. And he says that if you commit sin, you're a slave of sin. Give clarity to that. How in the world could that be true? Romans 6. Go ahead, Jim. Right. Peter says in Second Peter chapter two, the last part of verse nineteen, that whatever by whatever a man is overcome, to such is he in bondage. So the issue is not not being in bondage. Right. The I mean, issue is what are we? Who are we overcome by? I'm not the captain of my own ship. <laughs> All people are enslaved, right? right? Either to sin or to righteousness. That doesn't mean that shows up in your life all the time, everywhere, in every case, right? But what are you governed by? What are you characterized by? Right? And this is Christ, this is what Christ just said. If you truly believe, then continue in my words. It's true today. If we truly believe, then continue in what the scriptures teach. Don't be Dominated, don't be characterized by what is contrary to the scriptures. You can't be. That's not a true believer. A true believer is characterized by what is in agreement with the scriptures because you continue in them. That implies several things in your life, but that general principle is true. Doesn't mean that there's sinless perfection, right? Not at all. Because John, this same John addresses that in 1 John, right? Makes it clear that even Christians sin. Go ahead. Just We're going back there. Well, you guys are simultaneous, yeah? Go ahead. You go, Phil. Well, it, and it's also characterized by what you rebel against. If you, if you constantly rebel against God, then you're a slave to sin. Right. But if, when sin is manifested in your life, you rebel against it. You mortify the deeds of the flesh. You repent. Then you're in rebellion against sin. Right. Which can only be accomplished by the indwelling of the Spirit. Today. Go ahead. Well, I'll add to that. I've learned to appreciate the phrase, what is it, not perfection, but direction. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I was going to mention also First John where you have these references to sin, sinning, and you have to look at all these examples grammatically because he's talking, I understand, he's talking about an habitual practice. That's right. So with, with that in mind, that helps to differentiate between occasional instances of sin or falling into something that hopefully you quickly repent of and get back on track as opposed to being given over habitual practices. Yeah, and that's what I mean by characterized right. by. What characterizes your life? Not your life here, right? This is easy. Your life by yourself during the week. What characterizes you? That's, that's who you really are. And that's why I think Christ says you have to continue in my words. You want to be my true disciple? You have to continue in my words. Only you know if you're continuing in those words. I can see evidences of stuff, but I can't make that final conclusion. Only you know that. What are you characterized by? 
This is not a simple passage. But now we're back to where Christ is talking to the Pharisees, not necessarily to that group of believers. So he said what he wanted to say to them, but now he begins to address all of them. And he said that if you sin, you're the slave of sin. And by the way, the slave doesn't stay in the house forever. But the son stays in the house forever. And then he says, so if the son makes you free, then you're free indeed, and you get to stay in the house forever. So he's giving these these Pharisees principles that they don't understand. They clearly understand about slavery, but they don't understand when they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone, that they themselves are enslaved to sin. That they would never agree with. That they would deny. This is where they push against Christ. And they do. They argue. For the next 25 verses, they argue with him about this. But he brings up evidence after evidence. I mean, they appeal to uh, Abraham. They appeal to Moses. They appeal to all these patriarchs who you can just taste the arrogance and the pride in their statements that we are Jews, we're, we're the, the blood descendants of Abraham. And he says, yeah, you are, but you're still slaves. So we can't get into all that this week, but that's where we're headed. I believe we're talking about true believers here that could have been Pharisees. Christ addresses them, and then we go back to the conversation that we've been having with the Pharisees in general, not just to the true believers. But those couple of verses there are just to the true believers. He spoke directly to them. Because Christ knew what was in the hearts of men. He knew there were some true believers listening to him. And to those people, he said, you're believing in me, you've got to continue in everything I've been saying. You've got to take it all. You can't pick and choose. Questions? Confused or... You're confused? You have to come back next week. <laughs> <laughs> David? Yeah. Back in verse 33, the, 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 the Jews were saying that they hadn't been enslaved. I, I, maybe I missed their idea of enslavement because they said they were Abraham's descendants, but we haven't yet been enslaved. I mean, their idea of slavery as far as the King Abraham's descendants. I, I think what, what you said is true. Is they, have, they believe they're the favored people of God. And regardless of what their physical situation is, that never ceased. They're still the chosen people of God. And they are still the only ones who know God and have righteousness from God. And so they're saying, we're not anybody's slave, regardless of what our worldly situation is. We've never been enslaved to anybody. We never will be. Anything else? Dave, can I help us close just by reading two verses from Romans 6 that time would be okay? Yeah, that would be okay. Six, uh, 16 and 17, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That's what they are characterized by. That's what they believe. 
You know, you want to know who the sons of Abraham are? Read Romans 4. About, we well, can read the whole thing. But in Romans 4, he makes it very clear who are the true sons of Abraham. Here's a fabulous passage. And he talks about several lines that descend from Abraham. Some who are true believers, some who are not true believers. So just read that. And when you read the first six verses, seven verses, of where um, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and then he quotes from David's psalm. It's just, you, you will begin in our conversation that we're talking about to understand Romans 4 and 6 much better. Because you'll see it hinged on Abraham's faith. His book. You know, we use the word faith. It's no different than this word we've been talking about, belief. It's the same thing. Scripture equates those two with one another, puts them together. They're the same thing. To believe is to have faith. To have faith is to believe. They're the same. So read those Old Testament quotes over in, in, uh, in chapter 4 of Romans, and you'll begin to understand more of what Christ is saying, and that you'll be free and good. Thanks for your time.